Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. Jerry Wan, your host here. And I want to thank you for tuning in today to episode 64. We are already at the end of July, quickly approaching our five-month mark of having this show. We're approaching a very fun and big milestone. There's a good chance that you might be listening to our episode with Patrick as our 10,000th listener. So really grateful for you and for everybody else who's tuned into the show and for giving me the ability to share our stories, our Asian American stories, to celebrate, support, and inspire each other. Uh, we're going to be uh, introducing a few new things to the show this weekend, uh, so stay connected to our social media accounts, and we're actually going to have a special episode uh, to commemorate our 10,000 download mark. Uh, we're going to be introducing a way for uh, us to stay engaged, build community even deeper than we already have been, and we're in it's actually introducing a Patreon membership program. So uh, details about that are going to be available to you this weekend. And again, sincerely, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. And we're going to be sharing some uh, messages from our friends who have businesses that need a little bit of extra help in the next few weeks. And today's company I want to highlight to you is Soapbox Inc., uh, whose founder is a friend of mine named Danny. Um, so Danny's company is Soapbox, and what they help with is online business e-commerce fulfillment system. So if you're ready to expand your e-commerce business, but order fulfillment is holding you back, check out Soapbox. Uh, they can help with a software designed to simplify our e-commerce fulfillment, and they can provide storefront details, orders, inventory, shipping, all on one platform. It will allow you to efficiently process orders as they come in and take care of everything so you can go back to what you love doing, grow your business, talk to your customers, and have fun. So check out Soapbox. You can check them out on the web at soap-bx.com, or you can check out Soapbox Inc. at Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter, and all those handles are Soapbox Inc. all together. I want to thank Danny for being a big supporter of our show here and for a lot of the different side projects that we are working on here at Just Like Media. Again, appreciate you tuning in. And this is a really fun episode that I had with Patrick. It is a little long, but I encourage you to listen uh, all the way to the end. We cover so many great topics and he's doing really great work in uh, both the foster care community and the Korean adoptee community. So thanks again for tuning in. Enjoy episode 64 with Patrick Armstrong. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. Uh, whenever you're listening to this and from wherever you're listening to this, we wish you all the health, safety, and happiness in the world. We're recording this right at the end of July. And for far too long, I've asked you to be safe, be happy, and be healthy. So um, we've got, you know, uh, I still think we have a little bit of a window to do what we can to stay away from each other uh, physically and keep our masks on and to stay healthy. Um, 2020 is turning out to be a hell of a year. And while it's been a year of challenges for a lot of people, I think all that's been happening in the world has also uh, given some of us time and an opportunity that I don't think otherwise would have come to introspect and to learn a little bit more about ourselves and to begin journeys uh, perhaps that we would not have if we did not have this weird gift of opportunity of time and the world somewhat standing still for most of us because life gets busy. And if we're going down our path, it's really hard to stop and just, you know, even uh, reflect or think about how far we've come or from where we have come or where we want to go. Um, so really excited to hear the story of our guest today. And 
I'll tell you guys after he says hello how we connected on this show. And um, so anyway, let's get to meeting uh, Patrick Armstrong. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Jerry. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, man. Um, so uh, I'm not going to do the story this service, but share with the audience how you found the podcast and me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I recently have just been on a journey of self-discovery and, and looking into my own Korean identity, uh, especially being a Korean American adoptee. And just having, uh, I remember we had just watched the Randall Park and Ali Wong movie on Netflix. And I turned to my fiance and I was like, I need to learn about this side of myself. And so I listened to a lot of podcasts on Stitcher and I was like, I looked in the cultural and I didn't see anything. So I just typed in the search bar. Asian American podcast and Dear Asian Americans was the very first one that popped up. And after I looked at, I actually looked it up on Google and I was like, this is kind of new. And, and I didn't see a whole lot of reviews. So I was just like, you know what? Let me listen to this. So I listened to it. And that first episode with Jonathan Wong just really, really captivated me. So I emailed Jonathan because the end of that episode and every episode, uh, you say, reach out you know, connect. And so I did. And Jonathan sent me a study that literally made me cry. And then he emailed me back and said, I want to introduce you or I want to connect you with Jerry. And I sent him your email. And uh, if you want to talk, you know, um, balls in your court. So he, I said, yes. And he put me in touch with you. And a few weeks later, or maybe it was like a week and a half later, uh, we were on the phone. You know, that, that story is something that I think I will cherish uh, for a very long time. And I, I, I tell it quite often. Um, and I tell it from the perspective of people who uh, might be on the fence about starting something of their own, um, who are always doubting themselves about sharing their own story or doing anything in life because of this made-up fear that we have in our minds of either nobody paying attention to what we're going to create and to if there is a reaction, what we always focus on the potential, what if negative consequences of this thing that we're making up in our heads. Um, and so my, from my perspective, um, you know, I got an email from Jonathan and saying, check this out. This guy reached out and like, it's crazy and it's amazing. And, um, you know, Jonathan shared it with me as, as a point of uh, encouraging me to continue to do what we do. Um, and so we're going to talk about probably a lot of this, uh, throughout our conversation today, but, uh, long story short, um, we are now working together on, uh, creating a show here at just like media, very specifically on the journey of discovery and learning and culture and friendship and brotherhood and all the, the warm, fuzzy feeling things. And perhaps some of the more challenging topics that we don't really discuss, um, with you and two other Korean American adoptees that we've had on the show here, um, KJ Rauke and Nathan Nowak. So, um, and I'm saying that out loud on the show that we commit ourselves to actually doing it. Um, so account <laughs> listeners keep, please keep us accountable. If you're listening to this, like anytime after September and there is no, uh, Korean adoption podcast on our repertoire, <laughs> you can email us and go guys, what the hell get to it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've been really looking forward to, uh, sharing this conversation, you know, we did get a chance to talk a few weeks ago about your journey. And I am really, really uh, humbled to know about your background and, you know, how things came to be. 
Um, and look, I think, um, you know, your name is Patrick Armstrong. Uh, you, uh, like me, we have this like deep bravado white dude voice. And if, I don't know, if somebody just tuned in right now, they'd be like, there's no way that's two Korean dudes talking to each other. Right. And it's just, <laughs> yes, the, the way you look and the way you say, and that's sort of the identity journey too. Right. Like, um, when on paper, it's a Patrick Armstrong and somebody talks to you on the phone and then you show up and they go, that doesn't look like an Armstrong. And and that's, yep. you know, probably perhaps, unfortunately, something that you've had to deal with with quite a bit. Um, but but let's go back even more more than that. Um, how, how did um, Patrick Armstrong come to be? How do you know? Um, we, we know you were born in Korea. Um, when did you come to the United States? Under what sort of circumstances? And where did you land first when you were adopted? Yeah, um, so I was born in March in Seoul. Um, I actually literally just found out today that I got here in June. Was always under the impression it was later in the year, but it was three months later. Oh. So, wow. Yeah, so flew over to Indiana um, and to my adoptive family. Uh, and for the next 18 years, that's where I spent my life. Um, I grew up in a very small, conservative predominantly white town in Indiana. Um, I couldn't be more grateful for the family that I ended up with. Um, they gave me a really strong moral compass, a really solid foundation to be able to do a lot of things. And not only that, um, in 92, uh, my sister was adopted from South Korea as well, non-biological, and she was uh, born in Busan. So that was the first time, even at that very young age, that I had ever that it was like, okay, there's other people that kind of look like me before ever really understanding that that was a thing that I would eventually deal with. I went to a Catholic grade school, but am not Catholic. I went to public high school and played a lot of sports. I really grew up in your typical American fashion. And I was able to do that because my adoptive family, when you hear someone say the American dream, and that's what we're all chasing, they literally did that. So my mom's dad, my grandpa, he came from up north and came down to it, Rensselaer and built the cable company in Rensselaer. And so mm-hmm. he was doing cable in three cities surrounding that. And so we were extremely fortunate to end up, uh, especially as adoptees um, from Korea and a family that had, had provided us with that. And not only that, they gave us a lot of love, which... Now, looking back now, it was something we 100% desperately needed. Um, for myself, personally, I was always growing up. Okay, so I guess anecdotally, when I was in kindergarten, this is my first memory, I went into the school, knew no one, had no friends, and I walk up to two kids that are sitting there, and I asked them if I could play with them, and they were just outright no. And I'm the, and I look around and I'm the only person that looks like me and not thinking that was a reason, but, um, that was just something that happened. I think that was my first experience with, you know, discrimination in a sense that's, that systemic, you know, bias against other people. And one of those people turned out to be one of my best friends, you know, um, but just growing up and growing through that in this community, um, I never, I was never really fully aware of that because I lived such an American experience. Um, You know, there were certain times where it was a lot harder in school, but for just to look different, but I was so set on being accepted and feeling accepted, not even necessarily being it, but feeling that acceptance um, and feeling like I was part of this whole, because for so long 
I felt like I was not part of that um, just growing up. And my parents, bless them, they took us to like Korean culture camps and stuff when we were really little. Mm-hmm. But I think as children, we just didn't take to it like some some other people that are that have those experiences did. And from that point, um, whereas my sister kind of did delve into that a little bit, especially later on in life, I just went about my white boy experience, my white boy life that I was living um, and didn't question it. I didn't ask questions about it. And so I was an all right student. I did okay. I think I was 11th in my graduating class uh, of like 100 people. But yeah, I uh, went to college, went to Purdue and didn't go much farther than that. And then, and then, I don't know, I guess we'll get into it a little bit more as we, as we go down the <laughs> episode here before I get off on that tangent. Uh, but yeah, that was, that's kind of my origin. It was just a Korean kid with a white family with very, very few other minorities or ethnicities in my town who didn't struggle and faced racism but in a very subtle and Mm. in a way that i was oblivious to when other people were like that's that's discrimination that's not right and i would be sitting there like i didn't even notice and yeah what kind of conversations as kids if at all did you have with your sister who you mentioned is uh, ethnically korean but not biologically related um if i don't know somebody from your town looked at your family it's like oh they must be related or they might be related or at least, you know, like what, what was that relationship like? And, and has that changed at all as you've gotten older and have gone through various life experiences? Yeah. Um, so growing up, I think when we were really little, we were very, very close. Uh, there's a lot of pictures of me like holding her, you know, and playing with her and doing a lot of stuff. Um, so even though we're only two years apart, we are actually three, four years apart in high school. She was, I was ahead one grade and then she was behind just based on birth or on age and birth date. So we never had a lot of overlap. And because I was very into um, sports and doing all this, hanging out with my friends, um, we didn't develop that bond that I feel like I saw a lot of my friends from my hometown have with their siblings. And so those types of conversations, I think we had individually with our parents, but I don't think we had ever in that time sat down and talked to each other, like how we were feeling or this, that, the other. Um, It really wasn't until, I'll say actually when she graduated from college, uh, I think that was in 14 or so, that we really started to develop more of that sibling relationship, a lot closer, a lot warmer, Mm -hmm. where we talk about you know, those types of things. And we talk about what we had kind of went through in the past that we had never spoken about before. Um, and just relating to each other in a way that, you know, we, I don't even think we'd ever attempted to, to do. That's, that must have been a, a very unique experience, right? Because you know that there's something that brings you together, but perhaps because uh, the lack of cultural education, opportunity, exposure, um, you know, like maybe now, if you were an adopted kid, you know, you might tune into this podcast or you might just start looking up stuff on YouTube. Um, the connectedness of the digital world perhaps might offer resources 
and there are more programs, right? Um, we'll get right. to talking about some of the work you're doing with Guide and other great organizations to help bridge that divide too now. But back then when you were little, you know, our world was shaped by either what our parents told us and provided for us or what just happened to be on TV. And there was no diversity on TV. And if there were, it was very stereotypical and it wasn't as open and as inviting as, as it should have been. Um, when was like the first time you mentioned as you were, you know, that, that awful, you know, kindergarten experience. And, uh, many of us experienced that. Like I came here when I was eight. Right. And I was like, I don't know. Right. Like, is that just not all Americans or is it because I'm different? You don't know. And when you're little, you don't know. And, and sometimes your parents don't even know how to, um, you know, console you because they don't get treated differently. Right. Um, right. Or at least in the immigrant parents case, they expect to get treated differently so that they deal with it even in a completely different way. Um, when was the first time that you really felt like, oh, it's because I look like this or that I'm a little bit different? Was that when you were in Rensselaer in your small town or was it when you went to Purdue, which was a much broader and more diverse atmosphere? Yeah, um, I really, I think... My first realization that I was like different, I think was in grade school, kind of going into middle school. I couldn't pinpoint a specific date or time or even year, but I remember just asking my mom kind of about my adoption and what that was like. And, you know, she gave me the story that that, that was given to her. Like my birth father was, she says they told her was a government employee. My birth mother was a student and that they wanted a better life for me. And I remember having that conversation and just, and not feeling animosity to them, but feeling like for that first time and after asking that question, that I really felt that I did feel different compared to everyone else that I, that I grew up with and was friends with. And then, um, I mean, I don't know if I felt this for a while or if I just felt this in a moment, but there was, there was a time where and I'm sure a lot of, uh, especially adoptees, but other Korean Americans who grow up in a predominantly white community felt like, I felt like I wanted to be a white person. Like I didn't like my skin. I didn't like my eyes or the way that I looked. And it wasn't necessarily any specific person peppering me with like jokes about my eyes or whatever, you know, that came later. <laughs> that was going to come up regardless. But um, it was really just the feeling of I'm different in a way that I don't understand. And my, and my mind at that time told me that it was bad, that it was bad to be different. And so I, and it was, I think it was at that point that I, I started to see that. But then like in middle school, I remember my first day of middle school, somebody came up to me and asked me if I was the one Hispanic student's brother. They asked me, they were like, are you his brother? And I was like, wait a minute, what? I'm like, I'm, I'm not from Mexico. And, and then it was just, it, it's kind of those small things that reinforce this, this approach to discovering the identity, but also fed into my not wanting to discover it at all, which right. put me on this path of just, of dismissive, of, of being very dismissive towards it. Um, but yeah, I'd say that was probably the first time that I really felt that otherness feeling uh, was back then. So kind of young, but. Yeah, you know the um, wanting to be white, or I guess just knowing somehow, even in our youth, that life was easier as a white man. 
and somehow not I, I think it's not necessarily not wanting to be I don't think these are mutually exclusive. I don't think it wasn't that we didn't want to be Korean, but I think we knew that there were certain privileges and benefits and ease of life um that we know exist today that made all of us at some point in our lives wish that we were. Um and maybe it was at least from my perspective of having very strict and traditional type parents and household, it was like, yo, the white parent kids don't care if they go and rollerblade, like they're just chill, right? Like they just seem to be more relaxed and, you know, in a Korean household, it's just about order and respect and, um, you know, not as fun. Right. (laughs) Or, or, you know, it's just some of those things that like you experience that I have memories of as, as, you know, growing up in, in, uh, in my youth, like, so I, I don't think you're alone in that. I just think the perspective is different. And um, it's a very, very uh, appropriate 2020 topic to be talking about privilege and to talk about what we uh, get to experience and what we don't. Um, you know, in, in light of Black Lives Matter, it's like, okay, cool. If you can choose not to think about race, that's a privilege that you have to admit, right? And, you know, for us as Asian American men growing up, um, in a predominantly, you know, white world, or at least where that was uh, told us, told to us, that was sort of the goal. Like, if you don't have to worry about the battle of your identity because you only have to worry about one, like that still is a privilege because dealing with what, you know, like you ever go, I don't know, I go to a restaurant, if they give me a bad table, the first is like, oh, is it because? And I'm not necessarily pulling the race card, but if it happens enough, you just have to wonder why. Or, you know, um, right. you know, somebody's el- somebody else's food comes out like before yours, but they got there <laughs> after you. And you're like, I, you know, like it's the fact that even that crosses your mind is sort of like where we don't want to go to anymore. Right. But um, I, I, I think given, you know, your unique background of being in a home with a Korean sister, but in an environment where you were extremely unique right like financially you guys were comfortable you had access you had different sorts of privilege but not just the you know uh cis white male privilege that we talk about right um and so tell me about the experience of going from a small town in Rensselaer that was predominantly um you know not very you know homogeneous let's say right and then you spend a couple years at Purdue and in West Lafayette I mean Purdue mid big big 10 school in the midwest uh, numbers wise probably has a significant number of Asian, uh, perhaps more international than Asian American, but still uh, a very diverse mix of, of a student population. Um, was that a bit of a culture shock? Did you engage with new friends there or, or tell me about those first couple years? Yeah. Um, so actually right after high school, I went to Ball State for a semester. Um, you did? Okay. And it was actually there where I started to diversify my mind a little bit and my thinking. I took a, an American history class with a professor whose name is escaping me, but he basically said, everything you just learned in high school, you're going to unlearn. And he taught us the opposite side of the 80s and how what Ronald Reagan was doing in the, in the presidency and, and with Iran-Contra and with crack. And he went into all of these things Wow! Um, and was, and really laid it on. And it was like, Oh, because I grew up thinking in a town where they worship Ronald Reagan, where they worship the Bushes, you know? And it was like that, that was like, Oh, 
And this is right in the time of, you know, Obama is getting ready to, well, is getting to be elected. That was my first election was uh, mm. going into that in 2008. Right, yeah. And it was, it was really revelatory at that point. And then, you know, the, the thing that's sad to me for, for me and something I regret is not sticking it out a little bit longer there because I am such, because of my family and the relationship that I had with like grandparents specifically, like every Saturday and Sunday or every Sunday, even when I was at Ball State, I would drive all the way home to Rensselaer, which is three and a half hour drive to eat oh. breakfast with my parents or my grandparents. And I would go back. Um, oh. And sometimes I would stop at Purdue and hang out with my friends. And it just became a thing where I either I had a choice to make. I could either stay and, you know, build my outside relationships there or I could go to Purdue where I'm still far enough away, but close enough now to uh, be able to do everything that I wanted to do. So I chose the latter. I went to Purdue. And then from there, I, I majored in creative writing um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew that. I like to write in high in my senior year of high school. I got hurt in football and I spent pretty much three months only writing at my computer and doing poetry, short stories, all kinds of just weird, random stuff. And then at Purdue, I was pursuing that. And, but I had to take a lot of those first like general education classes. And in those classes where I had big lectures, I actually, that was my first experience meeting other Asians that weren't Asian American, but were international students. And you hear a lot of people, Asian Americans specifically, talk about that language barrier. Like I heard KJ talk about on his episode, um, where in adult or you, if you don't learn the language by the time you hit puberty, you'll never sound like a native speaker. And I was way, way past that. So I found, and I found myself in situations where I'd be sitting by myself in a classroom in a lecture hall, and an Asian student would come up to me, and we just, it, I. I didn't make enough effort to bridge the gap, but I was just, I was just so worried about the barrier. And I'm so, and I was so worried about, I'm inauthentic. I'm an inauthentic Asian person. Like as soon as they hear me talk, they're going to walk away anyway. So why engage? And I, I, I did a lot of disservice to myself, but I did a lot of disservice to those people um, who could have been my friends or who, Maybe they needed, wanted to talk and get more assimilated into American culture. And I didn't do that for them. So that is something I regret. But that was my first foray into that situation where I was surrounded by a lot more Asian students and and Asian people of my age. And unfortunately, I continue. I had that, again, a choice, whether to embrace that and pursue it or stick with what I know and, and continue to do the things that I'm comfortable with. And unfortunately, I'm a comfortable person. And I hung out with the same friends. I made new friends um, and diversified a little bit, but continued just to stay the same and to to not and it's just out of sight, out of mind. It you know, like it wasn't. Yeah. I didn't pursue it and I didn't think about it, so it wasn't something that I felt affected me, even though it was affecting me at that very moment. I mean, look, I I, I hear a, a bit of uh, regret or you know, sort of an apologetic tone, like you should have done more, but I. I think what you're doing now, which is, you know, still very young and still very early in life, uh, you know, bravely coming in and sharing all these things very authentically with us now. Um, and if there's a young person out there listening who might be a younger version of Patrick somewhere, um, sure, you know, adoption uh, patterns or trends have changed. So 
Um, currently today, there's not as many transracial and transnational current adoptees here in the States that are very young. Um, but perhaps there's a lot of people uh, who are even uh, newer or earlier in their journey to find out more about their identity. Um, and none of it, this is, there's no judgment in any of this, right? Like who, right. It, it's not your fault, whatever your birth parent circumstances, it's not your fault that you, you know, move to a, it, there's none of it. Like it is what it is. And, and much more about where we are now and where we want to go. Um, sure. I, I do think it's important to recognize some of the things that we perhaps could have done differently back in college 10 years ago, which then impacts our perspective of where we want to go from now. Um, but I think it's, I, I don't know what it is like to have come from your background and to go to a big school like Purdue and, um, you know, there are cliques and, you know, uh, I went to a big undergraduate school and uh, it's similar, right? Like there's right. cliques that form. And so even though on paper, the student population looks very diverse, when you get down to it, people don't really hang out with each other, right? Um, yeah. And especially if there's really not a lot of encouragement to to do so. Sure, I, I think life could have been differently, but hell, like, I don't know if you made an attempt then and um, you, you met a bunch of Korean friends, like you and I wouldn't be talking to each other today. So That's true. Uh, everything sort of, you know, ha happens for a, a reason. Um, what about some of that experiences in college, both at Ball State and at Purdue, um, you, you mentioned you sort of had this awakening of perspective and uh, maybe the way that I was taught about American history, again, a very, very 2020 topic, right? Like, right. holy crap, like, why the hell didn't we learn about Juneteenth? And, you know, why we got to watch a PBS documentary to learn about our people? Because, you know, anything, and I'll be very blunt here, and anything general white America feels guilty about because there were crimes created against humanity, they don't talk about it because many of them get to dictate what goes in our history books. Yep. And so now, thanks to uh, podcasts and thanks to the internet and thanks to just um, community building, we're able to share their stories and um, teach ourselves even. Um, you know, I, I didn't know what Juneteenth was until you know, not this year, but it wasn't, I didn't learn it in school either. Yeah. So, you know, like, and, and, and so, you know, it, there's, there's not like anger at my school system, but still like, how did, you know, what, what did you, how did you view sort of the rest of what was some of your perspective change, especially after that semester at Ball State where you be, it, once you begin to see American history in a different way, how, how did you just see America in in a different way? Yeah. Um, I think it was just, I, you're right, I think awakening is a really good way to describe it. And I think perspective-wise, it was it was an eye-opener, but I think there was still work to be done. Um, when I came to Purdue, um, so for writing, I took a, an African-American literature class uh, that was really good uh, to help me kind of delve into the Black American experience um, mm. and to, you know, get a better perspective on what slavery actually was, which was a big money business. And, and, and to learn, you know, that I guess I wouldn't say that I would have said back then that racism was systemic, but that was where those, those seeds were planted. I also took a native American anthropology class. Um, and that really, that one there was when I was like, okay, America is 
fucked up, basically. Um, apologies to your wife for cursing. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but it was, I, when I took that class, I, I kind of just took it as an elective and just I was trying to fill my schedule. And I remember the first day and he and the, the, the professor came in and he was just immediately dive right into how indigenous people have been not only removed um, from their ancestral land, but forgotten in the wider, the wider consciousness of America. And then honestly, the world um, and how there's not been a reckoning. If you look just like it with the Asian American, everything, if you look close enough, you can see the pockets of people that have formed to rise up and, and, and voice, amplify voices and fight oppression. But if you just sit back and you're not looking, you're not going to see any of that. And it's not because you're not even necessarily not looking, but it's because you either don't know how to look or you don't want to look. And those years at Purdue and that semester at Ball State taught me, taught me how to start looking. I will say that I'm still not great at it. I think that I've developed in that way. But <clears throat> I think that I think the the reason I say that I never I, I'm still developing, I think everybody I think uh it's really it's a, a, a perpetual development. But I think for me specifically, especially like with my own race, I'm recognizing, you know, indigenous peoples, black people, LGBTQ people and those rights. And then I'm not, but I'm still not thinking about my, my own. So, and my community that I should be, I should have dove in in that culture. I should have been learning about years ago. And so now that I'm 30 and, I, and I'm, I'm here, it's like, what, what was I doing when I was taking the, those other, those other courses? I'm glad that I did, but I'm like, why was I doing the Asian American studies? Why was I at least connecting with those people? So even though my eyes were opening, I still had the curtains and the blinders on to a lot of aspects that, you know, for some people, it's like, well, yeah, that's obvious. Why wouldn't you be doing that? And I was, it's like, look at, do you look in the mirror? It's like, well, uh, yeah. So um, I think especially with, with the, with hindsight that, you know, the yeah. privilege of having that it, it's, and to be able to reflect, um, I, I'm proud of myself for being cognizant of it. I am ashamed of myself for taking so long um, nah. to do it. So you're 30, man. You got you got <laughs> years years ahead, right? Like, I mean, look, um, if you were to visualize your life as an autobiography, right? Like, pick a magical number where you'd like to die. That's not soon, right? <laughs> right. Take uh, away the first 10 yeah. years of like not remembering anything, and you're a child. As an adult, you're 10 years in theory, right? Okay. You got another what? 60 years? 50 years? So like. You got more controllable chapters of your life than what's already printed. And so I wouldn't like you're here. Extremely proud of you for being here, right? Like the journey begins here. And I'm gonna tell the audience, like you and I have known each other for three weeks, just about. Yeah. The amount of stuff you've done in three weeks to <sighs> dive straight in the deep end of the Korean adoption community and volunteering for stuff and engaging and just like putting your hand up and reaching out to people. Um, dude, most people don't do that in three years, let alone three decades. And you've, and you've done all that. And, and, and so more excited 
and, and more emotional about where that's going to take you than any sort of negative emotion about what could have been, what should have been right. Because, um, silly butterfly thing, right? Like right. none of it happens. None of this happens unless everything happened exactly the way it had in your life. So, um, including, uh, you mentioned, you shared this with me, like right before we recorded, like after you left college, like you went on this like weird rap career mode and, how the hell did that? So you're 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 yeah. a Korean adoptee dude living in perhaps uh, one of the more uh, homogeneous, wider parts of the country, and you fall in love with rap, which for a lot of us growing up, hip hop was something to aspire to. It was the cool kids, right? Like it was cool stuff. Yeah. Like, how did that happen? And how far did you take it down? Like your your musical, you know, exploration of your gift. Yeah. Um... Okay, so here's my musical origin story. I This is a very, very <laughs> fond story um, I've told a few times. So uh, my freshman year of college, um, we were all hanging out in my buddy's apartment, uh, doing what college people do. And my best friend, he had downloaded, I, um, I can't remember. It wasn't Kazam. There was like, it was before like iTunes and everything, but where you could like download music and instrumentals and stuff. And he downloaded a bunch of instrumentals and had a USB mic. And somebody was like, hey, we're going to all freestyle. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not taking any <laughs> part of this. And so I, so everybody goes. Everybody goes. Some people go in the bathroom to get like in their little booth. But everybody goes. And I'm the last person. So I'm like, all right, I will, I'll do it. And I was terrible. But I felt like I had a, a decent rhythm over the beat. And so right at that moment, right after I did that, I was like, I like that. And so I think I mentioned earlier, I dropped out of college. Um, but this, I mean, this was honestly one of the catalysts for that. In class, I started to just write lyrics. Um, mm. I would, so this is when Drake and Kid Cudi were coming out and very big. And I mean, I listened to like Wu-Tang. I had the Marshall Mathers LP on cassette when that came out, when we were kids, um, you know, listen to uh, Dre and Snoop and the chronic and all of that. Um, very white kid approach to listening to rap music. Um, but I started to digest a lot of this newer hip hop that was coming out. And I really was about it because it was very emotional. I felt like and about emotion and I'm a very emotional person. I'm a Pisces and they tell me that those people are very emotional. So um, I would just sit in the back of class, one headphone in and just write to the songs that I was listening to. I wouldn't write my own cadence or rhythm. I would just write to that same thing, but my own lyrics. And I did probably like a hundred songs over the course of like two months, just writing and writing and writing. And then I was like, I loved it. I was like, this is the outlet of creativity that I have needed for my entire life. Wow. And we just so happened to know someone. He was a, an acoustic, an acoustic guitar player, musician, like very country soul, bluesy guy. One of the best guitar players I've honestly ever seen in my entire life. And he welcomed us. He's from Rensselaer. And he welcomed us into his home and his recording studio to help us get started with that. The first song I ever recorded was Garbage. I'm pretty sure there's a, a version of it floating around somewhere, and I hope you never find it. Um, but from that moment, we that was my kind of awakening to that. And then to bookend this origin, um, in 2009, 
or no, I guess it was 2010. We were sitting at a fire and all of my close friends knew that I was doing this. And one of them goes, when are you going to put out a, a CD? And my buddy, my best friend, who was my engineer, producer, all of this, he goes, we'll get you one in a week. And we had not recorded <laughs> anything. We hadn't done anything. And so over that next week, we got started on like Wednesday. So t- in, in three days, we recorded, I think it was 18 remixes and, and, and songs. And then put that out, burnt like, or made like burnt, burnt 200 CDs. And we had a party in our basement where I did a show. And we handed all we handed all those CDs out. Um, uh, some girl came up on stage and knocked all of our sound equipment down. And this was a break, a make or break moment for us. I busted out the Fresh Prince of Bel Air theme song, and everybody fu- and everybody sang along with it. And right as I got to the end, the music came back up, and we finished the show. And the next day, uh, they were at a tailgate for uh, Purdue football, and I was at work. And my buddy texts me. He goes, dude, somebody's playing your music in the tailgate. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so, and from that point, like that, that moment, I was like, okay, I got to focus on this music shit and, uh, and do that. So was that like a professional focus for you for a while? Did you, how, how far did you take it? Uh, yeah. So I thought it was professional. I mean, the thing that I loved the most about it was the writing and then the final, and then finally recording and hearing that what I had written transposed onto, on a logic. That's the, that's the thing we used and, and the beats that we were writing over. And so that was the passion for it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, this was like right around too, when chance the rapper came out and he was very no money for my music or anything like that. And I really connected with that message. Cause that's what I was about. And so I wasn't, I wanted to do it as a career, but I, I have this introversion where I, didn't pursue it as hard as I should in terms of promoting myself and, and doing live shows. I got lucky enough to get hooked up with a, with a pretty big guy in Bloomington. He put me on some showcases and that was great. I got hooked up with a, a producer here in Indianapolis, Chad Wells, who do, who has done work for mainstream artists. And, and that was great. He helped produce all my actual original music um, and put me on to people that would help me in 2000. 15 I moved I quit my job and moved to San Diego to pursue this professionally and flopped basically I put out two projects while I was out there but I only did two live things they were both like open mic small acoustic stuff and I just I it was at that point where I decided that I really liked to do the music but I had again as in college done myself a disservice of saying that this is not where my heart was um, to do Mm. it. And I was doing a disservice to the music and the industry and coming up with all these excuses as to why I wasn't pursuing it further. Um, And so over the past few years, I've gradually done it less and less till this year is the first year that I've, I've written one, I've written one thing, Um, no recording or anything. Um, but without having made that decision, I never would have been, I never would have gotten to this point in my life where I've done some other things. So, um, yeah, but as far as the music, I still love the music. If you catch me driving on 65, I guarantee you'll see me freestyling in my car to like the Oh Hellos or like the Lumineers or something super random. But, uh, I, I still, I still like it and, and I will still occasionally bust a rhyme, I guess I should say for cliches. 
I mean, this, you, I, the passion and the energy with which you speak about this part of your life <laughs> is something that I actually haven't seen you talk about uh, very many other things with. Uh, so perhaps uh, this is the beginning of a, you know, um, a revival of sorts. Um, you know, we got we got some music producers within our circles and and, and some who've uh, either been on the show or that we, we know we listen to the show. I mean, come on, dude, like on SoundCloud, your most popular songs has been played like 62,000 times. That's like nothing to sneeze at, right? <laughs> I know. Um, I just literally actually just saw that the other day. I had been yeah, on there probably so... about a year and a half. So, Dude, so I mean, look, I, I I think it's always been in you, right? I I think this part of, um, I mean, how many people go to college to like pursue creative writing, like as a thing? Not very many, right? Um, yes, not and, 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 people, and, right. And and rap is literally creative writing, right? Like we don't, um, it's America, so we don't put it on the same academic pedestal as actual, you know, creative writing, right? Um. But like these are masterpiece types of just word formation and expression of emotion and feeling and storytelling that is done not only through words, but through beats, which is doubly, even more than doubly hard, right? Because you have to like, there's so much science and art behind it. Um, that's cool. I Look, I mean, we, we probably talk about music for a, a super long time, um, you know, and, and so for those of you listening, like we had music on episodes like five through 10, just for a little bit. Um, and, and we decided to not do music, but I don't know, we might, we might bring it back and, you know, um, bump, bump up that, uh, SoundCloud, uh, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. So re real quick, before we move on to the other stuff, uh, your SoundCloud name is Patrick. Isn't real. Why isn't Patrick real? That's a great question. Um, I, I, when I came up with that, honestly, this really just was me trying to find something that was original. For a while, I was, so when I first started, I was Pat the Prodigy. And then I, oh. so that was probably a year, and I decided I could not do that out of respect to Mob Deep. Um, I could not be the Prodigy. So <laughs> then I was going by, then I was Pat P with an at symbol, and then my last name, Armstrong. And then I was just oh. Patrick Armstrong for a while. Um, and then when I started to really pursue SoundCloud as a, as a method to make sure my music was out there, um, and then I was on Twitter and Instagram, I want all my handles to be the same. And right, to, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I just was, I sat there one day and, and just, I don't know if that just popped out of my head or what that was, but I don't think I had said it as any, you know, moratorium on myself or any way that I felt about myself. But um, I just felt like it flowed kind of well, and it, and it looked all right, uh, especially on Twitter. I thought that that was a cool-looking handle. So, um, yeah, that's kind of I, – I don't really have a good origin for that. That's pretty cool, man. Um, I love it. Keep <laughs> – I mean, pursue it. Um, you never know. Uh, I don't know. Another, another time. Well – We'll uh, get you to rap rap on the next time you're on the show. Maybe. All right, later. Maybe. Um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's. Uh, where where does a uh, where does a dejected rapper go after San Diego? 
Tell me about that part of your life. Yeah. So after San Diego, I came back home. My grandma was having a little bit of health complications and that just made it a lot easier to come back. I thought I was going to stay out there for a while, but it just made it easier to come back. Came, moved back to Indianapolis uh, and just worked for about two, yeah, two years. And then in 2017, that's when Hurricane Harvey went through Houston and mm. I was I was in a really rough spot in my life personally where I just hated my job. I just didn't really like I don't want to say myself, but maybe just what I was, had been doing and, and the life that I had been leading at that point. And I felt like I needed to do something. There was I just needed to do something. And I'd always wanted to like help people, but um I never knew, you know, I didn't I never knew how to express that or, or go about doing that. And so when this hurricane happened, I just stumbled upon an article. It was like, we need volunteers from everywhere. And like, we have people coming from here and here. Oh, wow. And I was like, I got to do this. This is like a calling for me. So I quit my job. I <laughs> said, hey, I'm going to Houston to help. And I don't know when I'm going to come back. I quit my job, packed all my stuff up in my car and drove to Houston. And I was there for three months uh, doing volunteer work. I helped with a little bit of cleanup, but mostly I was at the Houston Food Bank. And I helped with a, a food program where they were already helping kind of underserved and marginalized communities, um, you know, like the third ward and stuff like that, get food to elderly people and people that were impoverished. Um, but with the hurricane, that uh, amount of people had like quadrupled. So they really needed people to go to the different community centers and pass out food and, and help and do that. Wow. And so I did that for three months. And actually, the last month I was there, I was going to um, a Korean American community center that was part of this program. And I did that a few, a, a couple weeks, um, and, and was helping pass out food there. And so, and that was another experience where I was interacting with Asian people, and it was a language barrier. But I that was this was the first time I gave it a chance to try and at mm. least communicate. And because I looked Asian, I was kind of like, people were like, hey, could you go at least try and, and bridge the, the gap here with <laughs> figuring things out? So I would help kind of get people in line, pass out the tickets that we needed to do and stuff like that. Um, but it was really very, very fulfilling. And I, tr I tried very hard pressing the food bank to hire me. I'm like, hire me. This is what I want to wow. do. And it just didn't work out because hilariously, I didn't know Chinese. They were, they had a huge Chinese community that they wanted to get into. And that was the one, that was the only thing that kept me from getting that job. And that really disillusioned me from, from that specific place, but it set the foundation for what I was, what I do now. And this philanthropic drive that I've had that I've, I think I've always had, but the fact that I went and did it, I was like, okay, I want to, I, this is what I want to do for a career. How do I do this? And so I came back from Houston and it was like, I, I started talking to my sister. I'm like, all right, we've always wanted to help. You know, we have the means to do this. What are we going to do? And and then that's kind of how we got to where we are today. And tell me more about that. What do you do? Um, what, how did you start it? And, and why? Yeah. Tell, what, what is, what is that you're, you're, you're most proud of right now that you're working on with your sister actually? And uh, tell us a little bit about the origin story of that part of your life. Yeah. So in 2019, uh, my sister and I founded a nonprofit organization in Chicago called the All Times Are Local Foundation. 
um, our overall goal and our mission and our vision is to bridge the digital divide between impoverished communities and resources. Um, and the way we do that is via our program called Phones for Fosters. And so we target older youth in foster care, so 17, 18, and then those in extended care, 19, 20, 21. And we provide them with cell phones, um, unlimited, da unlimited data through T-Mobile currently. And then uh, we help with a little bit with the insurance and stuff on that phone. And we got to that point because when I came back from Houston, my sister and I started having these conversations about what are we going to do to help? How can we help? Who should we help? And my girlfriend at the time, now fiance, was a teacher. And I was and I've always felt like, you know, education is something that needs a lot of help uh, from teachers to just a uh, systematic level. Um, administration, everything to just like supplies and book bags and all this stuff that you see drives for all the time. And so we're bouncing around ideas. And one day my sister texts me and she's like, I've never really heard of this group, but I think we should look into older foster youth. And so I was like, hmm. Hmm. I'm like, okay, um, let me do a little bit of research. And so I'm looking and I'm like, the first things you see, the statistics, you're like, what is happening? Who are, who are these people and why are there like 150,000 or 15,000 a year or that are aging out? And why are 70% of the young women in, in care getting pregnant at least once before they leave care, before they even turn 18, 21? Why are, you know, over half of the young men been incarcerated in jail one time? Why does, why is 14% of the American population, um, why is 14%? Uh, of the American population black, but 23% of all foster youth in America black. Like what, what is driving these, what is driving these things? And why are the outcomes for these older youth so terrible? Why are one in five going to be homeless by the time they get out? Why do over 50% of them experience homelessness at least once when they're, when they've been in care? And so seeing that stuff, I was like, all right, yeah, you're right. We got to help these people. We got to figure out what we got to do. And so from that point, it's kind of like my journey I'm on now. I just started reaching out to uh, um, adoption agencies and foster care organizations that help people. And I came across one where I'm like, oh, you have the president and the CEO's email listed. That was a mistake by you because here I come. So I, I start emailing and reaching out to these people and they were lucky. Uh, I was very lucky to for them to reach back out to me and say, yes, I'd love to talk to you about, you know, what, what you're trying to do. And so at that point, it was like, I want to start an organization that does this program and this program and this program. And after my first conversation, um, this, this gentleman's name was Brent Kent. Um, he goes, if I could ever go back and do one thing, it would be find one problem and fix it before ever moving on to anything else. Wow. And I was like, damn, I need that focus. I needed that. So I go back and I tell my sister, I'm like, hey, this is... I think we should focus on one thing. Let's narrow it down. So a couple weeks go by. I'm laying out like a calendar and everything. Like we should be hitting these deadlines and we're not making any of these deadlines. And my sister texts me and she's like, I think we should do phones. You should, you should look into phones and see what that's like. And so doing a little bit more research, you find out a lot of these kids are changing their numbers all the time. So it's really hard for caseworkers and organizations and resources to get a hold of them. A lot of kids don't even have 
service access to funds to keep a service on. So not only is their phone number changing, they probably don't even have a number. And the only way they can reach out to someone is on Facebook Messenger, you know, when they're connected to Wi-Fi. Right. The crazy part that I learned when we started this program was that that's the majority of kids. That's how they connect with their case managers and their and their resource workers is through Facebook and email. And I'm like, that's insane. Like they, that, that, right. that shouldn't be happening. And so from finding that out and then from working with um, that Indiana foster care group, um, we just started developing the idea of how do we get phones into the hands of these kids? What do we need wow. to do to keep their service on? How do we build an appropriate program that'll be able to do that? And so I moved to Chicago with uh, my fiance um, in 18. And we were like, and we had done a lot of research in on Chicago and, and the foster care community there. And we, and not that Indianapolis doesn't have that, not that every major metropolitan city doesn't have this issue, but in Chicago, it was close. I was going to be there. So I'm like, let me be somewhere where let's start this where I'm going to be and where I can be on the ground and, and do those things that we need to do. And so from there, it was just development, development, development. And then April. Uh, we had kind of for, I had put, pulled together some people, some close friends who have expertise in, in areas that we needed, uh, to form our, our volunteer board. And we were, we had no set start date. It was, we were very R and D at that point. And in April, I come across an article about a, an organization called I Foster, and they were launching a program very, very similar to what we were doing in California. That program was state sponsored. They got $2 million um, or $22 million to start a program in conjunction with Boost Mobile to provide phones for every kid in foster care. Wow. And so I'm like, that's great. That's awesome. But like, I'm like, I was kind of steamed. I was like, in a way that it was like, man, I thought this idea was so unique because there's nothing like this except for what people call the Obama phone, like Lifeline. They, they have for, for people who are who are below a certain poverty level uh, or an mm. income threshold, they have a phone that you can get and they'll pay like 14 cents off of your phone bill every month, which is nothing. Um, so I was like, I still want to pursue this. We got to do this. And so the thing that I think sets us apart from that program and from a lot of programs is that we're not state, we're not state sponsored. We're funded by a major contribution from our family my, my, mine and my sister's family, and then from our friends and family of our board and people that we know. And so we're able to do that. Um, we're going with T-Mobile. We're not using Boost or, or Cricket or any of these third party. Not that those aren't good, but we want to make sure we're having a service that's always going to be on, always accessible, um, always reliable in a customer service sense as well. And in order to stay and remain eligible in the program, so we do the program for two years. We allow kids to come in for two years. That's the life of a normal cell phone contract uh, before you can upgrade. Um, in order to remain eligible, you have to answer a standardized survey that we send out every three months. Um, so that helps us be able to measure our impact. That's where we get a lot of our statistics from that we can put up on the website, show to donors, show to people like the government, like the the DCFS, the Department of Child and Family Services in Illinois. Um, and then every six months, we actually, I actually go and meet with them in person and now during COVID, speak with them over the phone. And so the surveys are our general 
you know, information about your time in, in foster care and the meetings and the phone calls is where I, we allow, not we allow, but we are, we want to hear from you specifically. I want to hear your story and from your voice, what happened in your experience in foster care and, and how you got to this point. And the reason that's so important is because we're not only building rapport with them, but these are kids that have had a revolving door of adults come in and out of their lives. And I made it, I made it a very conscious thing that even when we expand the program and bring people and volunteers that want to, to be program coordinators and work with our youth, you have to make a two-year commitment because if you sign up a youth or if you are working with the youth, you are going to be talking to that person for that two-year period during these meetings. So we're building that continuity and we're giving them a voice and a platform where they're not going to be punished for what they say. They're not going to get that what they what they what they tell someone filed away to never be seen again and to never be heard from. Just uh, just off the top, one of the most recent conversations I have, um, this person was placed 26 times and wow. she is not even 21 yet. Just about on the cusp of 21, 26 foster care placements that blew my mind. And when you hear stuff like that, it's like. How and where and when are these kids ever going to get the time of day to, to have even the opportunity to succeed, to try and succeed? And that's how that's what connects us to this group It's not only where we adopted and we didn't go through a specific foster care experience, but we were adopted and we were adopted into a family that had already set us up to have the ability to have these opportunities. And. For me personally, I mean, I say this, and this is just another me knocking myself, but I squandered a lot of opportunities that I was given. And at the same time, I still have opportunities to go and pursue success and to be able to develop myself in a way that, that makes me, you know, a functioning adult in the society we live in. These kids don't have that. And if by connecting them to their resources and getting them connected to other resources, we're able to even give them the opportunity. That's what's in it for us. Like that's that's the the emotional and the and the personal payoff for us. It's just to be able to not just put the phone in their hands, but take the worry of, of being connected off of them and then to be like, hey, we're working with Center for Changing Lives. Um, you know, they do they have a program where they work with people over twenty one to develop resources, to develop financial literacy to develop Microsoft office skills so you can go and do temp work and stuff like that to, to develop yourself further. And that's been a really good partnership for us so far. I've got two, two people in there that have been meeting with their coaches and, and doing stuff like that. And I can't say they never would have found that without our program or, you know, uh, in that way, but I do feel a little bit of a sense of pride that we've been able to connect them with that. And if they can get even a little bit, out of that, I feel like we've done our job, but the job's not done and it will never be done until at a systemic level, we appropriately fund social services, education and, and things like that um, policy that we don't necessarily try to affect at the moment. But yeah, so that's how I got to this point and how we developed that. That's I mean, um, we, we hear some impressive stuff on this show. And I'm going to try to mimic the initial reaction I had when I first learned about this three weeks ago, but holy moly. I mean, look, I, it's, 
um, I think it's so meaningful for you and your sister, especially um, given your experience, uh, who have benefited from the generosity of one strangers now, your parents, right? Just luck in a way. How does that yep. match? How, how does adoption matching happen? It's it's sort of it's un, un unexplainable, right? Um, and then for you to take um, the privilege that you have, the circumstances that you have, um, and instead of, um, I don't know, putting putting it to something that is either self serving or neutral, um, you know, and and you didn't even mention when you were in Chicago, you were hustling as a bartender to try to make <laughs> money to fund this thing, right? Like, um, just giving service. Um, and I, I don't mean that in, in, in a crude cell phone pun joke, although it's oh, yeah. really brilliant. <laughs> um, uh, but it's it's the overlooked, If, like you said, if, if you look at the data, um, and unfortunately, or, or fortunately, and I'm sure this is, uh, I, you know, I understand this to be the case in adoption, the older the child gets, the less that they are paid attention to. Uh, both from the systemic structures that exist and from people who want to bring them into their home. Um, we know that to be the case. And the things that we just so take for granted, like a damn cell phone, right? Like, yeah, um, it's something that we don't even think twice about, right? Like we're sort of all staying home these days. And what if we didn't have digital media to connect us to, right? Like, um, but imagine you mentioned that woman 21 year old woman being placed 26 times the uh, emotional trauma and just the fear of can't trust anybody nothing's permanent and um while we want to think that many foster parents and foster folks are, are well-intentioned many are not um they do it for various reasons of whatever um financial benefit and other things and so for for you to provide a thing which is just a cell phone, right? You just it's a couple hundred bucks and it's really one could look at it as like what's the big deal, but as you mentioned so eloquently, it's actually giving them the only thing that they can perhaps claim as their own through this process. Right? Like this for is some, mine. Yeah. I, I have a phone number. This is my identity. I can connect with people with this. I can research. I can create stuff. Um, that is just, I, I think, in, you know, and, and you mentioned the, the other folks that raised millions of dollars. Like, you know, um, sure, the, the scale at which they get to help people, perhaps greater technically from a numerical perspective, but um, the personal touch that you go through to build the connections that you are with uh, these men and women. They're not even children anymore, right? And then to really be an example of uh, sharing your own story of, you know, I, I did not have it easy growing up either, but, you know, there are various ways to, um, you know, make life decisions to, to not even better. I, I don't want to shame where they're coming from, but just to own it. And, and to, you know, be proud of who you are and just to try to make the best of the situations that they're put into. Um, that is super duper fascinating. What What is next for um, All Times Are Local? Um, so you ha have a program running in Chicago. 
2020 is an interesting year. Um, uh, perhaps uh, uh, even a more of a need for people to put phones in folks' hands, um, as as you know, uh, personal interactions are down to a minimal. Um, what what is, what is next for you and your sister as you navigate the next chapter of All Times Are Local? Yeah, so our we actually just had an a, our annual board meeting um, oh, last week. No, two weeks ago. Um, and we did kind of plot out that course. So year one. We were very program focused. Um, we had a, we took we did we had a conservative number of twenty five phones that we were trying to get out. And for a while, I at first I thought we were immediately going to hit it, but I I had kind of misheard what uh, the initial organization we were working with. Not any fault of their own, my my own. Um, and then from that point, it was a little slow going. And then we got connected with an organization who works with single mothers. And a lot of those people, um, a lot of those mothers are in foster care still. And the unfortunate thing, just sidebar for them, um, their kids are now going to be going through that system too, unfortunately. Um, so we've been able to provide phones to a lot of those, of those young women, which has been really great. And I have a lot of great conversations with them. Um, but from that point on, I was like, you know, because we have this funding, we have a mechanism for funding where if we didn't fundraise at all, we could still at least run the program to a certain extent, which is great. That's a privilege. That is a privilege right there in the definition of privilege, which I am very grateful for. Um, and I wish other people had the opportunity to have. And I have mad respect to everyone that's got to do that hustle, especially in the nonprofit sector, um, because I do know how hard it is to fundraise. Um so from that point in January, about six months through, I was like, you know what? We have a, a minimal social media presence um, and we have a lot of this leftover cash that we're not using and we're not going to use for anything marketing wise or even a fundraising event specifically. We're doing all online and digital fundraising. So I said, and I, I, I went to everyone and I was like, I think we should, I think we should go straight program and get it, go to 50 and don't, and not do 25. I think we should get as many people as we can at mm. first revisit when we get to year two. So that's what we did. Um, we still have a few phones that are going out right now, um, but we're about to that threshold. And so for year two, we're taking this first quarter to really hammer out the specific strategies that we're going to need to utilize to not only take over marketing and social media um, for what we do and get us out there, um, but to connect with the communities more, um, to really physically, when we can put ourselves there, um, and, and start working with the people, you know, that in the communities that we're working with, um, we're also going to try and do, figure out how to do that digitally as well. Um, it's a little bit, you know, uh, as you know, well, know a little bit more, uh, logistic wise, a, a little bit more work to go in that, but we're also, looking at specifically what do we need to do partnership wise with local businesses. Um, so in figuring out the best way to bring those, to bring our entity and those entities together to not only sustain us monetarily, but to put them in the forefront of, to put them and their services, I should say, and the resources they provide in front of the kids that we work with. And then also how do we involve the kids in our program in these things that we're doing? What's the best way that we go about doing that? 
So for year two and, and at the moment, that's where we're looking. And once we have that, once we have that engaged and active donor base, that relationship with the community, relationship with local businesses, and relationship with maybe maybe T-Mobile, if you're listening to this T-Mobile, maybe T-Mobile, um, to figure out how we can most effectively reach not just every foster kid in Chicago, but in Indianapolis, in Denver, where we've received interest, um, in every major city and small ones. We got a foster care community in Rensselaer. That's a tiny town of 6,000 people. How do we how do we provide resources to them? So taking what we've done already and really going further with that. And then in the far future, springboarding new programs based on the work we've done with Phones for Fosters to make all times or local a banner for many different things that we can use to help the, the foster care community. You're doing some awesome stuff, man. Um, kudos to you and your sister and your family for um, tackling a problem that is, again, uh, quite overlooked. Um, let, let's put some good vibes into the universe. You, you found me because uh, Jonathan and I talked and we put out an offer to the universe and, and to whoever might have been listening to us. And certainly when Jonathan and I recorded that episode back in I think it was January. Uh, we had no idea that the world would be like this. Uh, it is actually fun fact: one of only two in-person interviews we've ever done on the show, and uh, this being the, the 64th episode going out. So do the math; that's not a whole lot. Um, what do you need help with? Um, how, how can our listeners help? Or if our listeners are affiliated with certain organizations or people that might be more familiar with the system and, and whatnot, um, how, how can our community? collectively help at some point when somebody might be listening to this all times are local. Absolutely. Um, we're always, I hate to say this, but we're always looking for donations um, just to, to continue to build that base. Another thing we're looking for is kind of in-kind goods. So specifically, if you have an old cell phone, don't throw it away. Um, I don't, we, we usually do refurbished iPhone sevens. That's the base phone that we've been doing, but the more phones that we can collect that we don't have to ship out a ton of capital for, the more mm. people we're going to be able to reach. Because the most important part of this is it's not technically the device. It's the service and keeping the service on and keeping that number from changing. So that's where that's where the impact is the greatest. So if you got a, if you got a device, uh, or preferably a smart device, but it doesn't even have to be, um, you can send it to us if you go to alltimesorlocal.org. Uh, and go to our How Can I Help page. Uh, we have an address on there and things that you can, where you can ship stuff to. So that is always extremely helpful for us. Um, and then I guess it's really just sharing or, or doing, I guess, a little bit of research on the foster care community in your, in your neck of the woods. Um, if you hear this and, and you feel like you want to do a little bit of research, specifically on older youth, I highly encourage you to do so. There are a lot of people out there that need help, not just from our program, but from a lot of different things. So if you have the ability to maybe, especially on the mental health side, to be able to share and listen, that's a that's one of the biggest things that I'm finding with, with our, our participants is they've never had someone to just listen to them. So mm -hmm. to, to be heard uh, is something that we always could use help with. Um, actually, back to the in-kind good thing, though. We can always use cases, uh, chargers, cords, cables, mm. 
charging blocks. These are these are the little amenities that we are we hope to one day be able to give everyone at the at the time of enrollment. Um, but right now we're trying to collect as much as we can to be able to hand that out and, and things like that. So if you're able to 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 provide any of that, we actually have a Amazon Smile account. So we do have an Amazon wish list on there where we have some stuff that you could uh, purchase. And then if you do choose us as your donating organization on Amazon Smile, you know, a portion of that, uh, certain purchases will go to us as well. So uh, we do always appreciate if anybody ever does that. Um, but really, really, I really just want to push the awareness of it. If you can, if you can spare a little bit of time to just learn about, learn about it. Um, I'm going to start blogging on our website a little bit more and hopefully linking to a lot of these stories. Um, that would be great. But the information is out there. Uh, and, and I encourage you, if you have the time, if you have some downtime, especially in the pandemic and you're working from home, um, just just read a story um, yeah. and, 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 give it a, and give it a listen. Uh, that would be, that'd be great. Awesome, man. If, if you go to All Times or local or all times are local.org um you can actually figure out how much your dollars are worth um it's connected to their giving portal uh, through paypal click a button you can make it monthly um whatever you're not spending by going to starbucks because you shouldn't um you know con consider sharing a little bit of our gift and our uh, our collective privilege that we are enjoying um and and you know and if you are not in a you know, position to be able to help, um, you know, as, as Patrick mentioned, financial is definitely not the only way to help. Um, you can share a message. You can, you know, as, as we all have in 2020, learning new things, learning new perspectives about things that we, um, can get down on ourselves and say, damn it, I should have known that, but it's not our fault. Um, make a commitment to know now, know better and, and, and to be, um, a better neighbor, a better friend and, and a better fellow human being. Um, we didn't really get a chance a whole lot to talk to you about the last month of your life, which, dare I say, ha has been um, uh, transformational or I don't want to hype it up, but like it's been kind of cool. I've, I've seen we, we've connected online and, and to see you, um, you know, engage in, in various Facebook groups and invite me to organizations and to see you getting involved and um, tell us what sort of sparked that um, and what are you doing and what do you hope to be most proud of in 10 years about this time of your life? Yeah. Um, so I kind of touched on it. We kind of touched on it earlier where we talked about, you know, how I found the show. Um, that was honestly, this show has been the catalyst for me to really, really hit the ground running on this. Um, I've been using the anecdote that for 30 years I've been, you know, jogging or running in the opposite direction of my Korean identity and my Asian American identity. And then for this last month, last month and a half, I've been sprinting back the other way, trying to catch up. And, you know, the spark was the fact that Jonathan responded to my email. And from that moment, it has just been, I cannot, I cannot tell you how much, how receptive everyone that I've reached out to has been. So specifically, um, uh, another example, I reached out to Jacqueline Matt. She is, she was the first Asian American studies professor at IUPUI here in Indianapolis. Um, 
I sent her an email because I was been, I've been thinking about it on this journey. Oh, I want to kind of maybe go back to school and learn that. Should I do that? And so I sent her an email with a bunch of questions. And two weeks later, she emailed me back and she was like, hey, sorry, I'm moving across the country. I would love to talk to you about this. Um, ponder some of these questions. And I was like, I can't even believe that, that you just emailed me back. Um, and then like Sarah parked on she, you, when she, I listened to her episode, you, when we first talked, you said you need to listen to her episode. It's coming up in your, in your playthrough. Um, very eye-opening in terms of, you know, the literature about it. And, and I reached out to her on Facebook and she has had one and a half full blown conversations with me over that. Uh, the first one we sat and messaged back for like two hours and I'm just asking her resources and, and books that I should be reading. So now in my, uh, uh, my cart on bookshop.org, I just have like six books that I'm like, I'm, I, I'm still trying to, to get through, uh, this book here. Um, this is Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars by Kai Cheng Tom. This is a book recommended by Sheila Lal, one of your guests, uh, who has that book club. Um, and I joined that. And so, um, all of this kind of led to, (laughs) all of that kind of led to actually, Jerry, you, Jonathan, when he first responded to me after he sent that, um, study, you sent him a link to an article about the guide foundation and what Moses and Derek Fisher and Jody Gill are doing and about the mental health and, and wellness side of this that I had no idea which opened a lot of eyes or my eyes and, and a lot of things about this situation to me. And so I was like, I got to learn about this organization. And so I, I looked them up and I see that they're fairly new. Um, and I see they have a contact. So I reach out, um, extremely nice woman named Debbie reaches out to me. She's a CAD, a Korean American adoptee from Texas. And she's like, Hey, uh, You'll need to talk to me and we can, you know, we can see what we can do. So we had a really great conversation over Zoom. And she's like, I, I, I love your ideas um, about what you want to do. We're real uh, excited about your passion. Let's put you, let, let's schedule a call with Derek, um, one of those co-founders to, to, to see how you can help. And so I get on, I get on a call with them and Derek, he, he is, he, it, this is like his, journey and this is like his mission and and he has not only the the knowledge and the and the background to do this but he has that passion you know like you're talking about when i was talking about music or when i talk about all times are local like that's what he is with this and i mean that's like that was like something that just you lasted me up and pulled me in i was like yes how do i get involved with you and so the guide foundation specifically is working is working towards the mental health and and well-being of transracial and transnational adoptees. So like what we are as Korean adoptees, me, KJ, Nathan, um, over 200,000 of us uh, that have been adopted out of South Korea. Um, that That is the Guide Foundation's specific focus there. They have a program that they're working on right now, which is the thing I invited you to, which is called CAD Town Square. So Korean American Adoptee Town Square. And this is, it's really exciting. I'm really, really fortunate and grateful and privileged to be able to work on this. Um, what CAD Town Square is, is it is basically the next evolutionary step. Um, it's an online portal that consolidates all 
information, all education, everything that you could want to know about the Korean adoptee experience, the ally experience, and those resources into one place. And so it's built, made up of a number of different buildings, um, different what would people would confer, refer to as pages on a website, you know, different buildings um, that focus on a specific topic within the CAD-related community. Um, and myself personally, I, I am working as the curator for the City Hall building. And what I'm doing there is researching every Korean adoptee group on Facebook and picking out the ones that, you know, not only the ones that we want to showcase, but the ones that aren't even active, things like that. Looking at right now, I'm doing nonprofit groups and organizations and figuring out who we need to reach out to and how do we get in front of you and what do we need to do to bring you into the fold. And we are, it had, so since I came on board, I felt like it was, you know, 50, 100 people maybe, uh, even that had liked the page. And it is just exploding. And by the time we hit 2021, this is going to be one of the largest Korean adoptee center or focused anythings um, in the world, uh, which is really, really amazing to be a part of. And so it's not just a conference or, or a something like Khan, which is great. Um, it's not just ICA, you know, International Korean Adoptee Association. Um, it's it's taking those things and making making a space where you can approach and find everything you need at your own pace. And it's not mm-hmm. going to be just for adoptees. It's going to be for parents of adoptees, friends, yeah. people that want to know this this stuff. And to circle back to Guide, one of the really amazing amazing things that they're doing in their first big project is a book, a handbook um, about Korean adoptees that want to go back to Korea and do that for the first time and do you know, search for the family or just to go back and experience the culture. It has a, they're, they're publishing this book very soon and it is going to just be able to walk you, walk people through, you know, how do you go about that? So like for Nathan or, or who's went back over there and didn't maybe have somebody to kind of guide him into that into that situation or scenario, they're developing resources and books that, that focus on that for adoptees. And then eventually it's going to be for other people, um, books for people like that, uh, like uh, families and parents and things like that. Um, so while at first it may seem like it's very exclusive to the adoptee, it is very much an all-inclusive organization and a program um, that's really, I think, going to change the landscape of how not only we talk about Korean adoptees and a situation or in society at large, but about how about how the general and collective consciousness actually refers to to our community, um, which is very, very unique. So, I have been very lucky to be involved in that. I hope. Over the next 10 years, in 2030, I am still involved in it um, in whatever capacity they are willing to give me. Um, and I hope that what Nathan, KJ, and I are working on with you right now is still there in 10 years. I hope you're still doing this in 10 years, but I've also launched about 200 other shows like you're already doing. Um, to just be able, so like we talked about, you know, I'm a month into this journey. KJ talks about being a five-year-old Korean uh, uh, person uh, right now at 26. I'm like, well, I'm like 10 seconds out of the womb and I'm 30. So 
just I, I really hope and what I see is me just continuing to be involved, not only making up for lost time, but continuing to to help the community, to spread awareness about the community, to help cut down the suicide rate in the community, which is astronomic, four times as many Korean adoptees commit suicide as they do uh, in the U.S., so as, as anybody else. So that's something we got to address. That's something we got to talk about and something we got to help fix. So I hope, I hope, and I pray that I am, am still involved at, the, at that level uh, down the line. Man, um, I just want to say thank you uh, to have played a small role in um, your journey of discovery, identity, and, um, and, and something tells me that this thing is going to be the thing that you don't ever quit for your life because it's not rap, it's not writing, it's far, far, far bigger than that. This is you and being led by your conviction to want to help other people um, literally save lives and, and to find themselves uh, through challenging circumstances. I am confident that, um, you know, this work that you are beginning now, obviously uh, it's so much work that it's, you know, um, can't be finished in, in any of our lifetimes, but um I, I really, really am uh, moved and just grateful that I, I've been able to. And, and Jonathan, uh, big thanks to you, Jonathan. Um, yes, thank you, Jonathan. And uh, it's you know, it's it's wild. Um, and I, you know, this we we play this game. I play this game all the time in my head. Like, how did this happen? Right? Like, how did this moment happen? And then we go back and we go back and we was like, okay, well, like everything in the world would have had to happen perfectly for this exact thing to happen, right? Like, exactly. Um, and and so you know it's it humbles me quite a bit. Um, I have no idea what the ultimate impact of uh, me wanting to do this ever will be, and I'm okay with that. And I've always told people um, I I am more excited about the things that other people will do as a result of the th- thing that this show inspires them to do than what I think this show will actually mean for them. And it's really, um, and and for people that are listening out there, um, five months might seem like a long ass time. It's about 150 days if you do something consistently, but I'm 37 years old. Five months is nothing, right? It's like half a percent, maybe, right? And I've put a lot of work and energy into this because I too, like you, Patrick, uh, my mom will agree. She'll freaking agree. Like hell, my wife too. Like, you know, like stick to something, bro. Right? Like shiny toy. Oh, this. You know, yeah. like um, get too excited. You know, get pissed <laughs> off at work, quit, whatever. You know. Um, but I think that we've all been collectively looking for the thing that we can never get tired of, and ultimately, it has to do with something that is us our literal DNA and our identity and the exploration of the stories that really uh, personify that. So um, I'm so glad you Googled or searched that on Switcher that day, man. Um, and and for all the podcaster friends listening, um, don't poo-poo every other platform not named Apple and Spotify. <laughs> Put your stuff on 
every single platform, man. Like we, we look at our data and like, I know that, you know, you know, people listen to us on, you know, platforms such as pocket cast and, um, other smaller, lesser known things that, you know, if you're playing the numbers game, um, podcast addict overcast, like things that may not be household names in, in the world of podcasts, um, that many people just might feel like, Oh, like, why do I need to do that? Um, but like, dude, I don't know. Like people listen to us on iHeartRadio. Like if you're listening to us on the iHeartRadio app, like, you know, like shout out to you, right? Like it's, you, you don't, our job is to create, right? And then our job, the next job is to then try to put it in as many places as possible. And then the impact of that is not up to us anymore. Um, so we, we do what we can do. And, and um, again, uh, ha- happy to admit to the world, uh, Lot, lot, of, lot of tears were shed uh, thinking about this. So, whew. Uh, yeah. Well, I just before before we get to the end here, I just got to thank you, Jerry. If you never would have took the leap on this adventure and started this and and doing what you're doing, you know, a person like me, someone like KJ, like you said, you know, reached out, heard Nathan's story. Um, I mean, I reached out before I heard Nathan's story, and I reached. I remember I was like. Hey, I think you need to have an adoptee on this podcast. And then you're like, oh, the next episode. And I was like, but seriously, it's, it's, it's for every, what I'm really learning for everyone, it's a different journey. And I think if you're not able to go about it at your own pace, you're not going to go at all. And some people need to go a a little bit slower. Um, I think if I never would have found your podcast, I don't, I can't say I never would have went on this journey. But I can tell you, I can tell you sure as shit right now, I never would have been dove into it like I have. I never would have found the the little bit of a, a piece that I've been missing for so long had I not just typed in those words and started listening to this podcast. So um, thank you. You're helping more people than you know. And I think you always will be with, with this show. So, Man, thank, thank you. Um... I, that's all I can say. Um, and, and to everybody listening, uh, thank you too. Um, we're actually approaching by the time you listen to this, uh, it's going to go out on Friday, the 31st of July. Um, you might be our 10,000th listener. Um, we're, we're getting to this milestone that is, uh, mind blowing for me that, um, I think depending on how you look at data, uh, with particular light to digital content. Um, some call it vanity metrics, some call it, you know, whatever. Um, but I, I, I think I, I am constantly reminded when I have conversations uh, like this or, or get notes from other people too. Um, it's 10,000 opportunities to have impact at somebody's life that I got to play a tiny, tiny part in. Right. So, um, I am just forever grateful to the 60 plus awesome human beings who've joined me on this show um, to share some crazy deep shit that sometimes they'll lead with. I've never told this to anybody. And the fact that they're doing it in a in a setting where they know it's going to get publicly disseminated is beyond my comprehension. The fact that they trust me with that and they trust our audience with their most precious secrets because uh it's this catharsis and this community building that we're, we're trying to do here. So um, if you're out there and you're listening to this and 
you want to share your story, um, we'll make room for you here. Um, you know, we're, uh, it's a lucky problem to have. Um, you know, we have a lot of people who want to come on the show, um, but reach out, send me a note. Um, if it's not this show, we'll, we'll figure out a way to, uh, you know, connect you in and bring you into our community and then to share your stories because, um, you know, like you don't know who's going to hear this and, and what kind of impact that's going to have. So, um, and it doesn't have to be through us. Figure out a way to start your own thing, write a blog, start an Instagram account, uh, whatever it is, and drown out the noise of people doubting you, people questioning you, um, people saying that you don't know what you're doing. Um, you're, everybody's, every single person's story matters. So um, please, please uh, share your stories as much as you can. Um, so Patrick, you uh, are one of probably a handful of people who have listened to every single episode <laughs> at least in, in, in order. And, uh, we'll be finished soon, uh, catching up to your own episode. Um, so you're very familiar with this part of the episode where we end the note or we end the uh, episode in the note in the form of a love letter, uh, to us and, and from us. And so it is a love letter to the Asian American community, uh, to, from, and for us. So if you could please give me the honor of helping finish out the show, uh, by completing the letter, dear, Asian Americans. You are not alone. You're not as lonely as you felt when you were 10. And if you are 10, you're not alone as you feel right now. You are not the mistakes that you may make when you turn 20, when you turn 25. You are not the things that people label you. You are not really lost. One day you're going to find that you're going to find yourself. You're going to find where you're at in your journey. And hopefully that day comes and hopefully we can continue doing that together. Um, I hope that if you took away anything from this episode and from this, this, this uh, spiel that I just went on, it's that you can fail a million times and if you if you can come across that one thing and you can find that one person to support you then then you've made it and don't feel and don't let anybody tell you otherwise and i love you thanks man um again uh please visit patrick uh at his organization's website um alltimeserlocal.org um, if you have friends who have studied, have volunteered, or is a part of the foster care system, wherever you may be, uh, please do reach out. Um, again, look in your drawers, look in your old boxes. Uh, if you have any sort of mobile technology that you are squirreling away for a day that you're probably never going to use, um, Send it to Patrick so he can actually really do uh, real good with it for people who are often overlooked. Um, if you want a glimpse into his life, you can find him on Instagram at Patrick in the world. Uh, you can find him on LinkedIn. And while we're at it, you can go to soundcloud.com slash Patrick isn't real and listen to Patrick gangster rap about a fun part <laughs> of his life. And we might, we might be listening to more of Patrick here on this show <laughs> musically. Um, 
if if uh, if the stars align. Um, thanks again so much for for listening. Um, this uh, just looked at the clock and um, not the longest one we've had. Sarah, that honor will always stay with you. Um, but as as um, as I've often felt, so often uh, doing what we do here, uh, we start the conversation as, as strangers and we end it as friends because I think we go through uh, so much about a part of your life um, that means so much to you. And 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 so thank you for for sharing that. Uh, thank you to those of you who've, who've stuck it out for the hour and almost 40 minutes with us. Um, there's there's no prize or giveaway at the end of this, but um, we, we hope that um, as as we go uh, enter the last five months of our year, um, as we enter the last 95 days before uh, we decide what the future of our country will look like collectively, and as we continue uh to face the grim realities of COVID and doing what we can to keep all of us safe. All in all, it's been a year of introspection. It's been a year to pause and to reflect and to begin new journeys um, and to have perhaps uh, rediscover some of the things that we may have suppressed for a long time. So uh, Patrick, man, thank you from the bottom of my heart. um, Let's get through this COVID stuff together so we can celebrate um, and let's put it out into the universe again. Um, we are going to produce, and you will hear a uh, just like media produced show for and by uh, Korean adoptees. Um, it's important to me to uh, have a hand in, in helping that show come to life. As, as Sarah Park mentioned that many times in her episode, um, very often, very rarely, actually, uh, the adoptee stories are told from the perspective, not them. And so, uh, thanks again. Be well. Um, if you're watching this video, you've seen the background go way darker. So uh, time for you to go to bed. And um, to you guys listening, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jerry. I just want to say thank you to Patrick. Um, if you're listening out there, if you are friends of Patrick, um, please thank him for us and for me personally. When he sent that email to Jonathan and, and Jonathan shared with me about that note, it really confirmed and affirmed my conviction that I was doing something right um, by sharing all of our collective stories uh, to memorialize it, uh, not knowing who would actually be listening to it, um, if ever, and to continue down this path to share as many stories as we can and to try to bring in as uh, a variety, a diverse array of Asian American experiences as we possibly can. And to be told that there's a Korean adoptee from Indiana, of all places, who just happened to find us on the internet and now is on his way to uh, find out more about his identity and, and so can get so involved in the community. Um, really one of the most special and, and um, heartwarming moments and tearful moments that I've had, um, that I've had the honor of having as, as we started this show together. Um, so Patrick, thank you. Uh, glad you're here. Glad you're in our lives. And um, we'll create that show together and help continue to share even more Korean adoptee stories. Um, if this story resonated with you and, um, and if you want to share this out with somebody uh, who you think might benefit from hearing Patrick's story with me, uh, please do share this episode with a friend or two. Um, you can screenshot the episode wherever you're listening to it and, and tag us on Instagram um, or share the accounts. Uh, we can 
uh, see you or connect with you on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and on YouTube. Just search the Eurasian Americans. And as always, uh, the DM inbox is open if you want to chat, if you want to send us an email. It's hello at theeurasianamericans.com, and I'll be sure to respond to all of our emails. Again, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Um, by the time you're listening to this, we'll likely have passed the 10,000 listen mark, uh, a big milestone, uh, just shy of uh, having started this show five months ago. And it means the world to me. Um, and perhaps in the grand scheme of things, uh, 10,000 listens is just a small milestone on our way to um, impacting the world in a greater way. But one of those listens was Patrick a few weeks ago. And one of those listens is something that has happened to help uh, redirect uh, Patrick's life and all of our lives for the better in a different way. So if you're listening to this, just from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Uh, please reach out. Would love to get to know you. I hope you stay safe. I hope you stay healthy. And I hope you remain happy in all that you do so that we can continue to celebrate, support, and inspire each other. Setting off on episode 64 of The Asian Americans, this has been your host, Jerry Wan.